Alright, we'll start in about one minute here and just let Okay. Well we're we're at about we're at twenty people. So I think we should begin. I should probably turn on my camera. So you can see me. Okay. Yeah, here we are. Okay. How is everyone today? I'm going to presume well. Um so let's start with housekeeping. The I, I've had a, a another spate of questions about the uh, the what do you call it the um, weekly responses. So it it it's just the Sunday after. So like if you want to do every man, you could hand it in. Oh, one second. Okay, if you want to do every man, you can hand it in this Sunday. If you want to hand it in before then, that's also okay. It's just Monday through Sunday, it's going to be Everyman or the film of Everyman or um, what else are we doing this week? Uh, uh, Peter Brooks's work on the empty space. So something in that, in that realm or in that range rather. Um, I, I made an exception just for the first week because it, there was some confusion or the first two weeks because there was some confusion about this uh so you know we should we should be on board i am reading them i'm, I'm probably not going to be able to send a comment to everyone um but you know that that is fine the idea really is kind of self-reflect uh and if you want to you could even think of them as uh prepping for a potential potential one of the potential projects right because you have three projects you have to engage in which brings us to the next point which is the first thing which is the acting project which is due on monday the the 5th of october and so that gives you about three more weeks to to do this yeah a little more than three weeks um so at this point you're really still looking for towards the the characters and what character you want to to analyze, um, you know, it's a more of a creative assignment. Um, who you are, what do you want, why do you want it, where are you, what are your obstacles? This all requires, um, you know, a careful reading of the the play, um, as well as kind of an articulation of what your your super objective is, your through line, uh, those type of things. The the scansion stuff is a little more complicated, um, but there's plenty of work to do before that. So if you want to really get a uh, if you really want to get a jump on it, I would say, as I said last week, picking out the character and sort of answering those basic questions. Right, uh, some of it, some of which involves creative contribution on your type. So. The educational background of a character is probably going to be something you might have to infer. It might not be directly referenced in one of these plays. So what kind of education would, let's say if you're doing Lear and you're doing Cordelia. Cordelia is a younger daughter of a king. Um, what kind of education would the youngest daughter of a king get? 
It might seem, you know, like a very high level of education. However, it probably is at a great high level of education compared to like the guy on the street, right? The, The mason on the street or whatnot. However, it also might be very low compared to older siblings or male siblings. So one thing you could do in that case that they, you could research as well as be creative is you can determine um, the kind of educational history of monarchs or British monarchs at the time of this play um, and talk about that research in in explaining how you came to the conclusion about the character you did. So that'd be an example of things you could do right now, even if you don't fully understand scansion and script scoring, stuff we're going to go through this week. Okay? Um, any questions about that, about those initial steps for the project? Um, I, I could do that for you if you'd like. I, um, I'm probably not going to be able to respond critically to everything, but I could uh, send you a response email about, I'll send response emails out to everyone about the first uh, two that I've gotten. Just to let you know what I've gotten. Mm-hmm. Next thing up is going to be uh, what we're doing this week. Um, we have scenes from every man post, or I have scenes from every man posted. So take a look at those for Wednesday's class. Um, we are also going to discuss every man in more detail again in every day in, in Wednesday's class as well as today. And then we're moving throughout this week, we're going to be looking at um, scanning scripts for your, your project, for your Shakespeare project, as well as uh, John Bart's The Empty, or Peter Brooks, rather, The Empty Space. Um, yeah, so uh, Peter Brooks is a lot of fun. He's sort of um, the more experimental version of, of Harold Clerman. So he's he's kind of on an opposite opposite spectrum. We kind of looked at Artaud and Clerman uh, as being very different from each other. Um, Brooks is uh, he's not quite Artaud. He's not that crazy, but he is um, going to be thinking about directing in a different way. And his kind of philosophy of directing could help hopefully inform. Uh, your directing projects a little bit or how you think about that. So we're going to be looking at at that as well. Uh, Any questions about this week's agenda? Okay, very good. Um, Great. And so today what we're going to do is I'm going to do again another kind of presentation on the history. There is a lot of history today. So for people who like that, you know, Good for you. Um, for everyone else who get, gets kind of bored of that, sorry. Uh, but we are jumping up, ooh, you know, a rough thousand years. And so there's a few things to explain in terms of uh, why why we go from Plautus to Everyman. Um, and first thing before we do that, I kind of, I'm interested in people's responses. How many people have actually read this play before? So if two people actually have read this play before. Is anyone not is anyone not familiar with this? I have not read yeah. this. Okay. Uh, I haven't read it. Okay. I don't know how to do this. <laughs> okay. 
All right. I, it seems like I'm going to go with a guess here based upon initial impression that um, most people haven't read it. And it looks like Sydney and Mackenzie are the exceptions, the, the literate people in our class here who've, who've read it all. Um, and so what I'm interested in is the, your guys' response to how different this is than what we've read before. Because Rome and Greece kind of go together, right? What we're reading in Rome, it, it actually still uses Greek words, Greek names, and it's really inspired by Greek comedy. Um, this, is, this is the first time we're sort of out of that orbit. So what are, what are your responses to this change? Or did you find it different? Okay. Yeah, it's another thing. This is the first play in English, <laughs> and and it's the uh, it's probably the the most confusing of the first three plays we've read. Any other initial responses? Did any anybody else feel uncomfortable with the the text? Okay. Yeah, so the text is uh, awkward, maybe we could call it. Um, we are moving out of Middle English at this point. So we are, this, this is coming out of, this is being written well after Chaucer. And Chaucer is, is Middle English. So if we think of English in three steps, it's simplifying, but so be it. Um, Old English or Anglo-Saxon, Middle English, and then Modern English. Anglo-Saxon, uh, you know, really starts to die out around like 1100, because that's after the, uh, the Norman invasion. And Anglo-Saxon is uh, grammatically more complicated than our English, and the Normans just weren't dealing with that. And so a lot of the complications drift away, um, the vocabulary becomes very French, and then you have Middle English. Middle English is what, what Chaucer's writing, it, it sounds harsh, it sounds Germanic, but you can understand it with a few exceptions of, you know, certain words. The grammar is basically there. The vowels are further back in your mouth. So instead of April, you say Iprelli, you know, um, which sounds kind of Italian <laughs> almost, even though it's a, a Germanic language. And then you have modern English, um, which occurs sometime during the the 14th century or the 1400s rather, and all the vowels shift forward. There's something called the Great Vowel Shift. And this play is written shortly after the Great Vowel Shift. And so the English that is being written here is a modern English and also a fairly new English. So this is a, a, a secular language that is coming into existence at this point. So it's, it's a somewhat pivotal piece of writing for understanding the development of our language. Any other responses? Okay. Okay. Um, good. Any f um, 
So we know from uh, Christina that not a fan, found it kind of confusing. Uh, and I, I, I agree the prose is awkward, right? We're going to get to Shakespeare and it's, it's going to look even more awkward relative to Shakespeare. Did anybody find this to be, for, for people who haven't read it, did anybody find this to be a surprise, a kind of pleasant surprise? You enjoyed reading it. Okay. Uh, There was a very tentative endorsement, but fair enough. Okay. Good. Yeah. This play, I think, is is going to be maybe the most difficult, Uh, not in terms of prose. Shakespeare's longer and his prose are doing a lot more. uh, His prose and poetry are doing a lot more. Um, But I think this is probably the, I'm going to say, probably the, maybe the most simplistic, and as I said before, the most awkward of the plays you're going to read. And so I imagine, yeah, that this is probably not going to inspire very many directing projects or what have you. Um, But it still is important in terms of uh, the revival of theater. And we're going to to go into that today. Let's take a look here. Let's get through this. So this is the first century AD. This is when theater was incredibly popular in Rome. We, we took it up to Terence, um, and even into Seneca, Seneca who dies in the, the latter part of this century. So here it is. This is a map of where a lot of theaters were built of, of different types. Um, the map cuts off so you can't really see Great Britain, but there's theaters there as well. So they're all over the place. They're very popular. A lot of them are not... Um, long-lasting. There's a collection of these maps at this link I, I put right here. So if you're interested in, in seeing uh, maps of Roman theater or other resources in Roman theater, here you go. But it's kind of bursting over there. Um, and so we have two centuries of this. Um, theater gets widespread, uh, and then Rome becomes an empire in 27 BC under Augustus. Um, roughly 60 years later, Jesus is crucified, uh, and this begins the Christian religion, and this is a really big deal in theater. Um, it's going to be both kind of the, the cancer for theater, but it's also going to be the place where theater is restored. Uh, so one of the biggest quote-unquote theaters, and we could think of it as theater, as entertainment, is the Colosseum. It's completed in the year you could see it there, 80, um, and then another great piece of theater criticism, Despectaculus, is published, or excuse me, written sometime between 197 and 202. Uh, and you begin to see at this point a tension between theater and Christianity that's going to mark the next 1300 years. And even later, as we, later as we get into kind of the the era of iconoclastism and and all of that, um, but now we're seeing theater and Christianity as being at loggerheads. Um, Three hundred A.D. earliest religious plays. Uh, so those are religious plays that obviously aren't Greek or Roman. These are kind of Christian religious plays, little skits about the life of Christ. Um, the you know Christians obviously were were persecuted, um, and 
they stage these plays kind of in part uh, in a way to be able to celebrate their religion, which was outlawed. And you could think of this not unlike the kind of City of Dionysus stuff, right, from, from two weeks ago, where we saw, uh, you know, theater used as a celebration of religion. Here, it's sort of their only opportunity that they can, you know, in, in a sense, worship is through the inaction of these, um, these religious events as told to them. Um, then 313, Edict of Milan, the Emperor Constantine legalizes Christianity uh, and everything changes. 331, Constantine moves the capital to Constantin um, Constantinople, um, which is in what is modern day Turkey. It's the Eastern part. And we see kind of a fracture of the Western Eastern empires of Rome. The East becomes more powerful. And um, yeah, and the West starts to have to deal with Germanic tribes, the Goths, Visigoths, Lombards, these different tribes that would come down and, and sack various cities that lived in, you know, the area that is modern day Eastern France and Germany. Uh, books began to replace scrolls, which means things are preserved for a lot longer. Um, the history of paper is very interesting. Scrolls tend to be on papyrus, which um, decay quite easily. But the initial, initially books are uh, written on vellum before you get, you know, paper, uh, cheaper paper, vellum, which is animal skin. And so books are incredibly expensive. However, they last very long. And so you start to see more stuff preserved. Um, in around 400 AD, state festivals in honor of the gods ends. So, or end rather, <laughs> state festivals end. And, and what that is, is um, we start to see the outlawing of, um, of religious presentations or state presentations. And this is going to be something that leads up to the outlawing of theater. Uh, gladiatorial contests are abolished. You can see there. And then here's theater's decline. So pantomime, which is sort of the, um, the, the staging of plays without dialogue, that comes to the West in, in 22 BC. Uh, and you can see here, there's this tragic mime and Bathyllus, the comic mime. And so you have a tragic mime, comic mime, they come and they um, sort of dance to music or narration or both. Um, and this becomes very popular. It lasts for centuries, but it becomes a kind of a, a major type of theater at that time. Over time, the mimes in the empire get rid of masks. Um, they include, includes female performers. Uh, and it becomes like in the first two or three centuries, whether or not it's allowed or not allowed depends upon the emperor. So some would kind of have a blind eye to it. Some would make it outright illegal, even punishable by death. Nero not only made it legal, but actually performed as a mime occasionally. So Nero is probably, it, it's like a race and race. It's a neck and neck race for who's crazier, Nero or Caligula. Uh, but Nero actually did perform as a mime. So in terms of mime stuff, Nero is a okay. 
uh, and also a lot of mocking Christians. So this is this is another source of the tension and the eventual illegality of theaters and tension between Christians and theaters is that a lot of this stuff kind of um, showed Christians as kind of silly and uh, sometimes even more than that you'd have mimes these kind of torture mimes who would do a pantomime and it would end with an actual crucifixion um, and and the mimes would mock them as they died so it you know it was uh it, it was a little more than hurt feelings that made Christians sort of dislike theater. Okay, so as I said, Christianity disliked the theater, uh, and fewer and fewer plays start to get staged. So after Christianity becomes the law of the land, first of all, it becomes legalized, and then the emperor following Constantine, whose, whose name I just forgot, he actually makes it uh, the only legal religion. So everybody has to become Christian. Um, and that, that antipathy doesn't die down. So fewer and fewer plays are staged because plays are kind of seen as anti-Christian. Because they were for a while. Um, at the same time, the these Germanic tribes I talked about start to invade. And you could see here, um, this is a map circa 500 AD. And you could see where the, the different Germanic tribes have conquered, right? Um, the Lombards are all over Italy now. And what happens is um, the eastern part of the Roman Empire breaks off. It becomes the Byzantine Empire. They don't think of themselves as independent. They think of themselves as Rome, and that Rome just lasted until the 15th century. Uh, but mostly people just call this the Byzantine Empire. They call it something else. Um, so there's a letter that we found that has a record of a play being staged in Rome in 533. This is the last record of theater in Italy until, you know, I, I want to say 1200, something like that. Um, now, theater might have been staged after that, but we don't have any records of it. Uh, and that itself is telling. And then 568, Lombards invade Rome, uh, and the state is you know, Rome is sacked. It's been sacked several times at this point, but the, the Byz uh, Byzantine Empire isn't going to kind of offer public funds to theater anymore. Um, Rome falls, the empire is in the east. So even if Rome wanted to send funds, even if Byzantium wanted to send funds to Rome, uh, it, it, you know, good luck getting it there. The Lombards are in control. Okay. Um, Constantine did build something, something like theater. Here is, uh, I believe this is Rome, and this is the Hippodrome, which was the largest theater that uh, of that day. And uh, you kind of see into it, and it was more interested in fights, races, etc. Uh, you know, gladiatorial contests were banned, but you could still have these these kind of chariot race type things. And so there was still this kind of public entertainment spirit. But we begin to see um, theater and public entertainment uh, as distinct things, or rather theater as a genre of public entertainment, the way we see it today. And uh, here, here's some evidence to it. So, you know, Constantine is not necessarily the biggest theater supporter. 
is in support of kind of certain public entertainments. Um, now theater begins to reemerge. Council of Trulio, um, held in Constantinople in 1692, in 692, excuse me, uh, it's called the Council of Trullo because the uh, building they were in had a type of dome called a Trullo. It, you know, not a great reason to call it that. Um, it was known as the uh, uh, Quinisect Council um, because the Fifth and Sixth Eumenical Council had issued certain edicts, but they had not issued disciplinary means of supporting those edicts. And this council was thought of as um, as creating rules, right? Uh, what an ecum- I don't know if anybody knows what an ecumenical council is, but it's it's a a meeting of all of the bishops and the pope. Um, the most recent one was Vatican II. If anybody knows what that is, that was an ecumenical council, and that was in the the early nineteen sixties. Um, they were more recent throughout history, up until um, the Council of Trent, I think, which was in the sixteenth century, and then you start to see. Um, conciliatory power pass from the council to the pope that's a that's papal history we don't have to get into that right now just know what an ecumenical council is and it exists to deal with church law right so they they need to establish some church law um justinian the second was the emperor at this point uh, and why it's important for our purposes is that um, it banned pagan rituals now, usually this is regarded as um, including theater. Like, this is the place where they ban theater. Looking through what the, what the council actually wrote down, it seems like they're, that they're interested in banning pagan rituals. They're not saying all theater practices outright are banned. However, most of theater was thought of as a pagan ritual, so most interpreters of the rules probably would have banned theater because it was by almost by definition pagan um however we start to see theater emerge in an unlikely place and this is the church so the church is uh is inherently presentational you are obliged to go there they um the the latin mass the original mass uh held in Latin, a language almost no one spoke, including the priests who recited things in Latin. Interesting story, that punctuation actually comes from the Latin Mass, because priests were so bad at Latin, you actually had to puncture the 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 Bible in order to tell them when to take a breath, because they, they otherwise they would just stop in the middle of a sentence. Um, but anyway, that's, that's neither here nor there. But um, quem coratus which translates roughly to whom seeks ye, was the first bit of theater to emerge uh, since, let's say, 692, really maybe 538, if we're, we're looking, back at, uh, looking back at our sources. Um, and what happened was, so as I said, the Latin Mass, it's not very uh, consumer-friendly, let's say. Um, and... In Switzerland, in St. Gall, you can see there, during the Easter service, they decided to put something in to kind of attract attention um, in order to celebrate the, the rising of Christ from the, the tomb. 
And what happened was they had four monks, one dressed as an angel, the other three dressed as the three Marys, Mary the Magdalene, and then Mary the um, the sister of Lazarus, who, if anybody knows the, the Bible story, they go to see Jesus at the tomb. There's an angel there, and the angel says, um, uh, for whom do you seek, or whom seeks ye, some, some kind of some kind of variation of that and they say Jesus and he's like well he's he's risen again and we know they started to do this because at the Regularis Concordia which was a rule book that um, this Anglo-Saxon bishop wrote um, that this was included as part of the Easter service that this Concordia which had all the kind of the regulations of the mass included the um, quem quaritis and that is that's very very important because this is the first kind of public performance we see since or that we have evidence of since the sixth century uh so very important um yeah great um so now that's that's kind of the initial phase of the reintroduction of theater um which is through this uh, liturgical process. And I'm going to take a look at uh, other ways in which theater was kind of bleeding back into society. Uh, and I'm going to work on the pronunciations of these. These are not English-speaking people, but Trosvita um, and the Klaza drama. So here she is, Hostrita, who was um, a Germanic woman. You could see her dates there. Um, so from Lower Saxton, uh, she wrote six short dramas. They're her most important work in the sense that for, for us today, that's what we read. Um, she joined a convent, convent, excuse me. Um, she became a, a canoness, so kind of a member of the convent. Um, she was very well learned. She studied hard and she wrote a lot. Um, she wrote a, a, what's called a hagiography, which is in praise of, uh, of Otto I, the Holy Roman Emperor. And this image we see here is a carving of her giving her book to Otto himself. She also wrote one for Otto II, as popular. She wrote the story of her convent, and she wrote a lot of verse meter. So some poetry, and everything she wrote was in verse. Okay. Um, now to her dramas. So here's another picture of her um Josvita. okay anyway um so eventually she got her hands on plautus and terence uh and she she really liked terence however she thought the the sex stuff in it now terence is is not quite as ribald as plautus um but she still thought it was kind of too much and she won and she understood how appealing theater could be and she wanted to create a Christian alternative to Terence. Um, and so she started writing these kind of hagiography, hagiographies, which could be anything. They don't have to be plays. I'm sort of mislabeled it here. They could be anything in praise of a person, typically in praise of a saint or martyr. Um, we tend to use the term more loosely as in, in praise of a great person. Um, but in the Middle Ages, they specifically referred to saints or martyrs. And so a lot of her plays were about that they were about martyrs um she was especially interested in chastity 
Uh, and here are her six plays. Dulcitius is her most famous, the second one listed there, which is about um, women who, these three women who avoid um, uh, getting raped by a Roman soldier. Um, and it was a comedy. So, it, you know, it was considered very funny, uh, despite the, the content. Um, but the idea was that, the, you know, the, either the women avoid being, um, being harmed and then, um, then are elected to heaven because they, they preserve their chastity. Or like in the play of Abraham there, which is, is actually not about Abraham, the biblical figure, but um, that is about a woman who's um, raped and then she becomes a prostitute and then she reforms and, and repents. Um, and so that's another theme in her plays. It's somebody repents and kind of reestablishes chastity via repentance. Okay. Another major writer who starts writing plays at this time, uh, writing a little later, is Hildegard of Bingen. Um, she, she was born in, in the Palatine, uh, which is Western Germany. And the Palatine Germans are um, have their own kind of language. Uh, however, at this time, it's part of the, the Holy Roman Empire. Um, She's a Benedictine, which is a type of uh, a type of uh, monastic order that develops probably right around now. I actually don't remember the, the the years that the Benedictines developed their monastery. It's that's fallen out of my head, but um, I, I don't think it's much later than or much earlier than now. She's most famous probably. I mean, she wrote a ton of stuff. Uh, she was an incredible person she ended up controlling her order she was in charge of that she wrote uh you know a tremendous amount and she's most famous probably as a as a mystic and what that was is um a mystic is is someone who has kind of effective knowledge of christian stuff not kind of intellectual or rational knowledge uh she wrote also wrote hagiographies um of theodorics and i have no idea who that is her liturgical drama is the order of virtue, as as we see here. And it's important because it is the first example of the medieval morality play, every man being the most famous example of the medieval morality play. Um, and here we have a character named Anima, which is, is just means soul. I think it's Greek, you know, uh, Latin for soul. And Anima is caught between a bunch of characters who are playing virtues and the devil. And, you know, you really want Anima to go with the virtues. And Anima does in the end, so everything's good. But this is where we start to see that, that structure that we, we find in every man where, you know, uh, the characters stand in for a virtue or an affection. All right, but it's not the only type. We have Cycle of Mystery plays. So at this time, we also have... Um, Historical events, obviously here. So here's kind of a, a breakdown of historical events going from the early 13th century up until Henry VII. Um, da, da, da. Let's see how much how important any of this is. So I would say 1430, modern English begins to emerge. That's important. Um, and of course, Henry VII is important too because you start to see the, the Tudor line establish at the end of this history and the Tudors are very important for the development of of drama 
a little later. We'll start to get into that next week, but they certainly are. Um, however, dramatic events, what we see is the plays begin to move outside. Um, drama ends up being banned inside churches they start to say well this is this is not something to do uh the pope i believe makes it, it officially bans it and so plays begin to move outside uh, oh excuse me no i'm sorry the pope doesn't ban it the pope bans uh clergy people from performing in plays he doesn't ban plays from being in church my mistake um however plays still move outside because they want to become more elaborate right and they want to get a, a larger audience apparently the plays were a lot more fun than the masses um you start to see the spread. You can see the first German play here. Um, you start to see secular plays, uh, you know, plays not on religious topics. In Japan, no drama begins to develop at this time. Um, the Second Shepherd's play, which is, you know, if you take a class like this, you're either going to read Every Man or the Second Shepherd's play. Um, it's kind of a coin flip. Um, a very famous morality play is, is established. Uh, and then 1495, every man is staged. Okay. Um, so moving outside, plays begin to move, become more popular. Um, inside the church, these things called mansions start to be built. And you could see pictures of, this is later mansions. This is late 16th century, but it's sort of the same idea. It's in the church, there'd be these little stages built everywhere. And so you would go to a stage and see a scene right um and you can see at, at the far right here that stage right there is called the hell mouth and it, you know it, it's the the um it's hell opening up to to grab people uh and that's where you know if anybody hears a buffy the vampire slayer fan the hell mouth from that show comes from <laughs> comes from a church mansion in the 13th century but um anyway this is kind of the reintroduction of stages back into theater um these stages become more and more evolved and they start to be moved outside and the ones you're looking at in this picture here are actually outdoor stages they were in churches um 1210 as i said before innocence the third that was the pope at the time um he bans clergy which means um sorry clergy but now there is a demand for lay people for people in the community to perform plays it's now now it's outside the church and now that church people aren't involved you start to see private citizens staging drama again and this is how drama um reemerges. so we saw how different people were writing uh, drama and how those genres came into being and now we're seeing how the the kind of social engines reintroduce drama okay um types of theater we we've covered a little bit with the uh with the morality play um the big one there was the mystery play it wasn't a mystery in a in a you know Sherlock Holmes type of way, but a mystery was was another word for a trade. So if you were a carpenter, a blacksmith, a mason, um, a brewer, these were all mysteries or trades. And what the the tradespeople would do was they would join together and they made a guild. And so you would follow the regulations of the guild. That's who regulated business at this time. And if you wanted to do business in a particular town, you had to be part of a the guild that did that business. Those guilds every year would buy a cart as you can see in this picture here this is a um uh 
Pieter Brogel the Younger, Brugel the Younger painting. Uh, it's kind of zoomed in on one of these carts here. Um, and they, they would buy a cart, they would decorate the cart, and they put on a play from a story in the Bible 30 to 40 minutes in length. And over time, a bunch of these guilds would do this, so you would have a cycle. And a cycle would be a collection of 40 of these short plays that worked in terms of kind of a narrative from uh, the creation of the world to the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, or in some cases to the apocalypse in the book of Revelations. And so it would tell the, the entire Bible story. And I wouldn't obviously touch every single Bible story. You know, it, it, it was a skim job, but um, it, it still, that was the intent. Right. And these would occur over several days. So you didn't have to like sit in or stand and watch for, you know, whatever, 22 hours straight. You could go, uh, you know, get beer, come back, go to bed. You know, it, it was a it was a festival over a few days. Um, other type of plays that occurred were passion plays, which are just about the, the uh, life of Christ, the, the death and resurrection of Christ. Miracle plays were about the lives of the saints. Um, so here's another um, here's another kind of outdoor mansion or cart that were, was used by one of these guilds. I, I'm not entirely sure what's being represented there. Um, but anyway, th this is kind of supposedly what it looked like. And here on the uh, the left, you could see an outline of the different cycles. The, the most famous play from these cycles is the second shepherd's play from the wakefield cycle written by someone known as the wakefield master plays at this time including every man had a, had no author or they had an author but the author was anonymous there was kind of this um pride thing that, that was considered a problem uh, and and so people wouldn't put their names on plays but you could see it's it's kind of blurry but it's an outline i found this outline online of four different cycles and and just the outline and just the the names of the 30 to 40 minute plays in the cycle to give you kind of an idea of the breakdown and if you zoom in you could kind of see it but you, you know you don't have to kill your eyes trying to look at this thing right now it's sort of a, a general outline of um of how this was approached all right here we are again uh so any questions about that and you know, that's, that was a lot of information. Uh, any questions about that? Okay, good. Um, well, if you do, just, just chime in and let me know. But let's jump into Everyman. We're going to cover the beginning of it, then we'll cover the kind of the performance and the end of it uh, on Wednesday. Um, so let's talk about the opening and what happens and why it's important. So if we go to... Uh, the opening there, so what's that, page 225. Um, let's see, there's a, there's a few things that are going on. And we have a messenger come out, and we have kind of God come out. Not kind of, he, he does come out. Um, and so what is the, the conflict that is being introduced by the messenger? Yeah, I, I mean, that was, kind of, I, I don't know, too happy would be, the, the way I put it, but you're right. It, it's they're forgetting about God, right? Um, and so the the point of this play isn't to kind of entertain you, or even just in honor of 
God or, or Dionysus, you know, fill in your X. Um, it's to correct your sinful ways. Um, so he writes here, this is line 10, 11, 12, 13. You think sin is, you think sin in the beginning full sweet, which in the end causeth the soul to weep. When the body lieth in clay, here shall you see how fellowship and jollity, both strength, pleasure, and beauty will fade from thee as a flower, as flower in May. So we start with a direct address to the audience, not in terms of what we saw with the Greek chorus, where we're given uh, narrative components, you know, hey, audience, remember this, or in terms of um, the direct address to the audience in Plautus's play, which was entirely commercial, right? Plautus was like, hey, so Plautus is, this is Plautus's play. You love Plautus. Clap for Plautus. How great is Plautus, right? He's the best. Here, the play has a purpose. It has an instructive purpose, which is you have lost your way. Um, this play is going to demonstrate um, how you have lost your way and how to gain it back. So this is what's called a, you know, a didactic trauma. It's instructive. It's trying to, to teach you something. I think that it is probably the only didactic drama off the top of my head. I think it is the only didactic drama we are reading for, for this class. Um, but it does have a particular purpose that is different from, from other plays. All right, so let's move into God. So now God comes out as he does and God speaketh. And so what is, is the problem God is presenting? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, this is the top of page 226. They thank me not for the pleasures that I to them meant, nor yet for their being that I them have lent. I proffered the people great multitude of mercy, and few there be that asketh heartily. They be so cumbered with worldly riches, then needs on them I must do justice. On every man living without fear, where art thou, death, thou mightiest messenger? So, yeah, God, God has done all this stuff for them. And as you said, Christina, uh, they don't recognize it. They don't acknowledge it. And so then God, God has to call on death and death has to go to every man, every man who is all of us, everybody watching. And so this place starts with a double move. It starts with an, a direct address to an audience telling the audience, hey, the purpose of this is this pay attention. There's, you know, there's something important you have to get out of this. And then the second move is God, uh, God sort of begins the play and he echoes or he almost repeats the, which is what an echo is. He repeats the message in terms of, um, in terms of the drama itself. So the message that exists in the world for the audience is then contextualized by a character playing God for the people in the play, namely for every man. And so the we're thinking again of, as we did with, with Plautus, as we, especially as we did with Oedipus Rex, of the relationship between um, audience and what's going on on stage and how and why the repetitions in this play, and there's a lot of repetitions, there's a lot of like, um, every man then summarizing what just you just saw happen, um, which in film would be kind of infuriating. But 
in in terms of Wednesday's class, thinking about how some of these repetitions might function or do function uh, would be important. So we'll get more into that in Wednesday. I think I've kept you a minute over already. Um, but uh, thank you for that. Uh, in terms of the in terms of the the sound recordings, um, I'm going to try and uh, put them together as a podcast. So hopefully very soon you'll just be able to download uh, from you know your podcast catcher these these talks. okay? And that should be it. Any questions? Uh, just yell them out. And otherwise, we're done for today. Thank you.